Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1978, and this is a story about a boy and a girl Ooh, tell me more, tell me more. The movie Grease. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, And I'm just now realizing that that musical introduction that we do, that beautiful uh, singing, acapella singing that we do to intro every show is such a great uh, entry point for our musical series, which we are now in the middle of because we are trying to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we're going to send them into space. But right now we're trying to find one of the best musicals. We started off... Really easy with A Nightmare Before Christmas, a beloved film. And I really love seeing the reaction to that. And now we're going into another film that has a gigantic fan base, a gigantic following and huge staying power, which of course is Grease, the original Grease. I'm so excited to talk about this movie today. Yeah, I cannot believe that you have never seen this film. You've only seen scenes out of context. So this this is exciting, Paul. I know. This is a whole new world. I think there is a song about this. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's in Lion King, right? So um, here's the deal, people. We want to keep on hearing from you about what you want us to talk about on this show in regards to movie musicals. So head on over to the Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear in the unspooled section. You can... uh, you can tell us what you want us to do, and we can also uh, find out some of those suggestions on the Facebook page as well. Uh, so keep the suggestions coming. But I don't think there could have been a series about musicals without this musical that we're going to be talking about today, because truly, it should be on the AFI list. It's shocking that it's not. It is one of the ones that when you expect to scan down the original AFI 100, you're just looking for Grease. Surely Grease is here. Wouldn't Grease be here? 
And perhaps you're thinking that because you absolutely love Greece, but perhaps you're also thinking that because Greece is such a major touchstone. Like, of course, if, if, if West Side Story is on here, if The Sound of Music is on here, it just seems natural that Greece would have been on there. Now, what do you think about that theory, though, that Adrian Zemed, the star of Greece 2, is the puppeteer behind all the members of the AFI and has been keeping Greece 1 off the list until Greece 2 gets its proper place on the list? Ugh. Do you think there's any truth to that? Are you, are you saying that there's Greece, Greece truthers out there? I, I'm saying that I'm a Zemed head, and I know. I, well, you know, I have to say, I've been shocked at the amount of love that Greece 2 gets like Greece 2 is to a certain section of people more beloved than Greece 1. You know, that's what I love about people, man. <laughs> they, <laughs> they like to find their underdogs and celebrate them. Uh yeah, I mean I have seen all of Greece 2. We did an episode of it for how did this get made. Uh and my wife is a Greece 2 over Greece 1 person. I didn't know where you fell on the Greece 1 Greece 2 debate. Oh, well, at the risk of throwing a Molotov cocktail into this conversation, I'm a hairspray person above wow. both of them. Interesting. And okay. So I actually was really glad that we are going back and doing Grease because the last time I watched Grease had a stressful connotation in that back when I was doing the canon, my um, boyfriend, who is a passionate Grease head, uh, the kind of guy who can do like a tight five on all of the Greco-Roman illusions that he finds in the movie, you know, like when, um, say, Kanicki has a coin put over his eye, how it's an allusion to crossing the river Styx and how they're in a river basin, how this is deeply a movie about death and rebirth. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. He wanted to come over the canon and talk about that. And I was like, yes, but only if I can try to argue that Hairspray is a better film. The, the original, <laughs> the original John Waters Hairspray, not the remake. Yes. And we both came into it with so much heat that it was actually one of our first big fights as a couple. And so I've like wow. pretended to like be mad at Greece ever since. And it was nice to rewatch this movie with my boyfriend, as he was pointing out all of his Greco-Roman illusions, um, and and uh, put my weapon down, even though I do still think Hairspray is my personal favorite. Well, I'm very excited now to hear your thoughts on Greece because I'm coming in with a lot of illusions, uh, pages and pages of uh, references and things, hidden meanings. We're definitely going to talk about the end. Are they dead? I want to hear your thoughts. But... Hey, without any further ado, let's unspool it. First of all, let me, let me apologize for that terrible accent I was trying to do when I said, let's unspool it. But Whoa, you just did it again, but it sounded more yeah, Russian. I know, it's not really working. Accents aren't working for me. Anyway, <laughs> let's unspool it, said Nosferatu. Let's unspool it, my wife. The year is 1978, the year of three popes. After the death of Pope Paul VI, his predecessor, John Paul I, lasts only 33 days in the position before dying and giving up the role to Pope John Paul II. In the UK, the first human to successfully be conceived through IVF is born, and over 900 members of the People's Church at Jonestown in Guyana perish after being convinced by Jim Jones to drink the Kool-Aid. Sweden is the first nation to ban aerosol sprays due to their destruction of the ozone layer. And in the States, the son of Sam killer, David Berkowitz, is sentenced to 25 years to life. Hot films of the year are Saturday Night Fever, also starring John Travolta, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Animal House, The Deer Hunter, which we did on unspooled and you know how i feel about that film and today's film greece amy 
Who's in it? What's it about? Who made it? I want to know all the details. Grease. It is directed by Randall Kleiser and written for the screen by Bronte Woodard and writer and producer Andy Carr. And uh, Bronte and Andy based their version mostly on the 1972 Broadway version, which was itself based mostly kind of on a scrappy, small musical stage production that was done in Chicago that was only supposed to run for two weekends and not expected to become the highest grossing musical of its day. Uh, A lot changed in Greece from its scrappy theater production to gigantic Hollywood musical, but the basic gist remains the same. It's the end of the 1950s, and greaser Danny Zuko is shocked to discover that his conservative summer crush Sandy, a girl that he lied to his friends about hooking up with, is now going to his high school. Can Danny let go of his cool guy image enough to win her back, or can she come over to his side of the tracks? Sandy is played by the pop star Olivia Newton-John, who was very big at the time. Um, Slightly less famous, but rising fast, was uh, her co-star, who was a TV star, John Travolta, who had just, as you said, six months earlier, had his first major, major, major starring film role and first Oscar nomination for Saturday Night Fever. Also in the cast, you've got Jeff Conaway as the tough guy Kaniki of the Thunderbirds. You've got Stalker Janning as the tough girl Rizzo of the Pink Ladies. And there's so many more other people. We're just going to have to name them as they come up. Take a listen. Sandy! Daddy? What are you, what are you doing here? I, I, I thought you were going back to Australia. We had a change of plans. I well, that's cool, baby. I mean, you know how it is, rocking and rolling and whatnot. Danny? <laughs> that's my name. Don't wear it out. What's the matter with you? <laughs> What's the matter with me, baby? What's the matter with you? <laughs> what happened to the Danny Zuko I met at the beach? So Olivia Newton-John got her first mention on this podcast just a month ago when her very first number one hit, I Honestly Love You, happened to be on the top of the charts the same weekend as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was first released. So what song was number one when her movie, Grease, hit theaters on June 13th, 1978 and ranked number two at the box office behind Jaws 2? I think you'll recognize it. Let's just play it now. You better shape up. Take that and rewind it back. History, the number one song on the charts was from the actual movie that we're talking about Wow. How did that even happen? I know. I mean, it's a song that wasn't even in the original Broadway production. It was written for the movie, and they released it a month before the film came out to kind of drum up excitement. And guess what? It worked. It worked. It worked. I wonder if they were drafting a little bit off of John Travolta's Saturday Night Fever success, like if that actually elevated the song up a little bit, even though he doesn't sing in Saturday Night Fever, but because he was probably popular at the time, that it had that ability to kind of rise in the charts. I don't know how charts work. I don't get it anymore. I don't know what's popular. The internet, TikTok, what does it mean? (laughs) Well, actually, John Travolta at that time was kind of known as like a singing star. Have you ever heard any of his like 
Oh, albums. Yes, I have. I mean, I may not have seen Grease, but I've definitely listened to John Travolta sing. I've listened to Joe Pesci sing. And of course, I was a big fan of Bruce Willis singing. I mean, all all the all the guys out there, Johnny Depp with his band P. I I, I know it all. Oh, man. Well, I got to play this song anyway. Please. By the way, Amy, just so you know, this was not like a flash in the pan. That song that you just played spent five months on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, and it peaked at 10. It didn't go past 10, but five months is a long time. That is a long time. That is, I'm surprised I've never seen anybody do that at karaoke. Maybe you'll do it. Maybe that will be my new song. I'm normally a go-to Neil Diamond guy, <laughs> but now I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, like if it's 1978, for you, John Travolta is inescapable. Because not only is Grease like the second best-selling album of the year, the second best-selling soundtrack, the number one best-selling soundtrack is Saturday Night Fever. So everybody got Travolta Fever, baby. So it's Bee Gees on one side and John Travolta on the other. I mean, and very different kind of songs, too, because Bee Gees is incredibly disco. I mean, that's so 70s. And this is so light and breezy Broadway musical, you know, 50s. I mean, or it feels very traditional. So it's interesting that those two are fighting for the top slots. Well, and also combining. I mean, because the very first song on Grease the like grease is the word yeah is by the bee gees and i and i think when you like listen to that song you really hear the disco in it i, I should probably say up at the top that grease is one of those movies that that is confusing for me kind of the way like happy days or american graffiti is where it's like a 70s movie set in the 50s and i get very confused about like when it was made oh I fall for that trap all the time. Christmas Story, Happy Days, all these things. I never know. I never know. Game of Thrones, is that in the 1970s or is that in the 1990s? I don't know. <laughs> you never know. But yeah, when you listen to that like opening song, I'm like, oh yeah, this is clearly trying to be a little bit disco-y, grooving on. I mean, one, one of the producers was actually the manager of the Bee Gees. So he was like, I know a guy who knows the Bee Gees. That guy is me. Uh, Bee Gees, <laughs> I want you to do a song. And the director's like, I don't want a Bee Gees song. And he was like, don't care. BGs are doing the opening song, which that song is catchy as hell, but there's one little moment in it that I find hilarious every time we listen to it, Um, which is it's like grooving and it's like Grease is this and Grease is that. And basically, you know, um, the BGs just kind of wrote it on their own. They're like, you want a song about Grease? Okay, we'll just make up some stuff. Okay, great. Sure. You know, it's not part of like a cohesive plan about what this movie is about. But then there's one little bridge where all of a sudden the song gets dark and then it continues on. It's right here. Life of illusion, wrapped up in trouble, laced with confusion. What are we doing here? It gets so existential. I love that. Yeah, you know, I that opening I never saw before. Like I said, I've never seen Greece 
from tip to tail, from T to B, from top to bottom. And I never saw this opening animated sequence, which is so cool. Ralph Bashke, who did uh, Fritz the Cat, did the opening here. He was actually going to make an animated version of Grease, but then that fell through and he made uh, The Lord of the Rings, uh, the animated version of that. But that open is really interesting and I think speaks to why I really, I mean, I knew I was going to like this movie. How could you not like Grease? I mean, the songs are fantastic. The performances are great. Um, it's just, I mean, I would be a heartless uh, son of a bitch if I didn't like this movie. It's its kind of perfect, but I think what it does really interestingly is exactly what you're talking about. It's mixing the Bee Gees with a traditional kind of Broadway show musical and everything in this movie kind of pushes boundaries in a very interesting way. Like the dance sequences and the musical numbers are really exciting and they don't feel flat. They feel, I mean, this is a terrible word to use, but like trippy, right? They're like, you really go into these sequences and there's something very meta about this musical that is so mainstream. Like the immediate thought that I had was this is a comment on Rebel Without a Cause. This is a comment on all these movies that, you know, we talked about. And I think it's a different version of what American Graffiti tried to do. Like American Graffiti, I think, took the grittiness of what was going on and and really adapted that. But it was fun and gritty. And this, I think, does a more successful version of what American Graffiti was trying to do. Uh, and I know people love American Graffiti, but this is funny. It also has some dark moments in it. Um, and I think it's telling the story of the 50s from the kids who lived in the 50s, not adults in the 50s trying to understand what kids were going through, if that makes sense. It, do, it does make sense. Yeah, because, I mean, American Graffiti is by, you know, a guy trying to recapture what it felt like to be young, to tell like right. his story about what it was like. But the people who made Grease, they're a little bit too young. They weren't actually like conscious and cool in the 50s. Yeah. So this isn't their story. This is them thinking about like what their older brothers were up to or like the generation ahead of them that they were like watching, but they couldn't participate in. And so they come at it from a different angle. They're not being sentimental so much about it. But I'd also say that I feel like it has the perspective of a spectator who saw it and knew, oh, they're just pretending to be cool. Yes, they're smoking. Yes, they're doing that. Like, it shows a grittier side by showing the reality of it, but not making it, um, like, leave it to beaver. It's not, glo- <laughs> you know, I'm trying <laughs> no, to figure out how to say it. Like, I, yeah, maybe no, I'm I wrong. Hear you, I yeah. hear what you're saying. And now I'm, like, kind of thinking about all of those movies where we have, like, our main character and our main character has, like, a younger brother who makes fun of them the whole time. Right. You know that kind of trope that you have in movies? Like, you're going out with him tonight. He's a loser. Like that character. Yeah. I can't think of any examples of them off the top of my head, but I know I've seen like 90 movies with that snotty little brother kid or snotty little sister. And I feel like Grease is a movie made by that snotty little sister about what their main protagonist brother was doing. Yeah. I think it's the younger brother or sister who actually knew what their older sibling was actually up to and not how they wanted to be perceived. Or at least that's, there's an energy to it that I feel like is undercutting a lot of stuff 
but also telling it as it is. And that's a crazy idea for a movie like Grease that's so kind of bombastic and bold and and heightened. But I do feel like this poser mentality is throughout. These mistakes are being seen. Like, there, there are some really interesting things in this movie. I don't know, that really kind of surprised me. It's not as sugar-coated fantasy as I thought it was going to be. It's a lot more uh, pointed. I think it, it, I think it is kind of upending a conception of the 50s by actually showing you maybe a more realistic point of view. Yeah, I mean, it is saying, in essence, the people of the 50s, they were really into fucking and smoking. Yeah. Or or, or at least talking about it and pretending that they were. And they're doing it kind of first. I mean, like, technically, in the 70s, we have all those, like, throwback things. You know, Last Picture Show, like we were saying, and American Graffiti and Happy Days. Grease, the musical, predates those. Like, it comes out in 1971, the same year as as The Last Picture Show. But it it seems like because the film comes out later that it's, like, chasing the trend. But actually, Grease was kind of at the top of the trend. It just took seven years to become a movie. Right. But the original play that I was talking about in the intro had even more of that kind of, like, snotty punk rock attitude. Like, it was a super Chicago production kind of set in a specific part of Chicago set with specific type of Chicago people. Like it was more of a movie about like working class Polish people. It's so funny you say this and I want to hear more about it, but the movie I couldn't get out of my mind when watching it was Cooley High. It felt very similar to Cooley High to me. Like in the the way that it was showing this very uh, unique, truthful way that these uh, people were living their lives. Yeah, it had very much like a type of coolie high energy it, it, in a way where it was trying to kind of poke fun at, but also respect like it's part yeah. of Chicago. I mean, Sandy's original name in the very first production of the play was not Olsen. It was Dombrowski. She was supposed to be like oh, hyper wow. Polish, you know, not vaguely Swedish, Scandinavian. They took away kind of the ethnicity of Sandy. And made her, well, Australian Swedish. Man, Sandy Dombrowski is really right up there with Dom Cobb. I, I think that this whole movie would change if they kept it to Dombrowski. Well, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Like, the Sandy in this movie has to be, you know, a Sandy kind of whitewashed. The, but the Sandy that this the production actually was, was a Dombrowski. Like, it was written to be a kind of Dombrowski kind of snotty attitude about the 50s. It was written to kind of lovingly make fun of Sandy more and not hold her up as like an ideal teen dream. Okay, so like, like, so she's a part of the crew in the original musical. Like she's a little bit more like, so she's not like, like there's an element to Sandy in this movie where she is, like it feels like a foreign exchange student. She's, you know, from a different place. She has different morals. She's not a part of this group. So was the idea that she was a rich kid in the original musical or that she was just another one of the the kids? Yep, she was just another Polish kid who was really good. The emphasis okay. was more on like her goodness than like her foreignness. Got it. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. 
Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. This was originally supposed to be a story that, you know, very clearly made fun of the 50s, but made fun of it with kind of like a proto 70s punk attitude. Yeah. You know, like it made fun of it in a way that I think has since in our memory become more glossy and whitewashed. But the original Grease was trying to say, like, back then, everybody told us that we had to be like preppy. We all pretended that we had to be conservative, but we were really like into sex and cars and like we were cool as hell and like if you wanted to be cool back then you shouldn't be a conformist you should actually like be rebellious and be what sandy became like it you know it was a movie about how it was cool to reject the 50s and so like when sandy in that movie sandy dombrowski decides to go from like preppy to greaser that was so in keeping with like the tone of what that play was you know, it was all about kind of screw conformity with like a more angry lens about it. And to my point about being meta, that ending is incredibly meta. The bad boy doesn't become the good guy, which is, I think, a trope that we've seen a million times. Oh, I'm going to change my ways because I fell in love. She becomes bad or, you know, quote unquote bad for him, I love that. I love that switch. And it's not even really fully explained. I mean, I will say, if I was to have any note on Greece, it is plot-wise, there's not much going on. I mean, we we really are making some jumps from scene to scene. It's it's kind of like these little vignettes more than a story with an arc. It's it's just set pieces strung together, and you kind of have to draw your own conclusion on certain things. Exactly. And I mean, I have to say, and I'm sure we're going to get into this longer later, I've always had an issue with that ending that I'm trying to struggle with and reconcile with. And I think part of helping me understand the Sandy switch at the end is understanding that it was meant to be more kind of like punk rock. Yeah, fuck you, which gets lost to me when the movie gets a little bit glossier. But I found a clip of something that helped me like actually really understand kind of the tone of original Greece because there is no like original, original Greece. Uh, we don't have any recordings of it. And like, and because the movie Greece got so popular, it's sort of like erased and written over like subsequent productions of Greece. And they've like added movie stuff to the stage production and blah, 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 blah. But I found a clip um, that helped me understand it. And it's uh, from two years before the musical Grease came out in 1971. And it's Sha Na Na, uh, who did all those like 1950s covers, yeah, actually yeah. plays the band in here. Sha Na Na playing at Woodstock. And Sha Na Na playing at Woodstock is like so surreal. And I highly recommend people go watch clips of it because it's this band coming to this like hippie, grotty crowd playing this like vintage music, which is 
throwing everybody in the audience and they're very confused that this is happening, but playing it with like this kind of proto-punk rock attitude that is winning the audience over, but they're not quite sure what to make of it. Like you realize that Shanana is more of like a conceptual art piece when you see Shanana perform at Woodstock, not just like simple nostalgia, but like actively screwing with people, wearing crazy outfits and just being wild. And you can hear a little bit of that in this clip. I wanted to go through yeah. that because I think that's what's been missing for me in Greece is like is like stripping away that one last little bit of like nostalgia that's been put on this movie because it's so popular and going back to how doing anything 50s when the play started was like weirdly rebellious and like angry and like angsty and a lot more fun than I would have guessed. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like there is a punk rock attitude in this movie. And if you look at it on the surface, and I think this has always been my thought about the film is it's like, oh, it's 50s, it's happy days. It's not happy days. And Shanana, I could talk about Shanana for a while. I mean, you know, the lead singer of Shanana used to wear like a chain around his neck, which was not even a real, I mean, it was like, it's almost comical, like what he was wearing around his neck. To your point, what I think is really interesting about this movie and something I don't really like in a lot of other movies is these are clearly not high school kids. And they're all in high school. Like Michael Tucci, who is like one of the T-Birds, like he does not look anywhere near high school. And neither does John Travolta. Like everyone looks older. And there is... Yeah, Channing is like 33. Yes. And there's something about this where it feels like we're putting on costumes, we're doing this thing, we're chewing our gum, we're doing these large characters. I mean, they are... I mean, they're caricatures. And... I feel like everyone's in on the joke of what they're trying to do. And then what I think makes this movie have like a long lasting, uh, like a staying power is there are these really beautiful, nice moments between Olivia Newton-John, who is incredibly grounded, even though she's also, you know, this, you know, a stereotype of like a perfect girl or whatever, you know, um, between Danny and Sandy that I think keep the whole thing moving forward. Like the scene at the diner where he goes on a date and he's embarrassed or doesn't want to be seen there by his friends because he's still got to keep up all these, uh, you know, illusions about who he is. That inner sweetness of him, like where he drops the facade, I think that carries the movie and makes it like work on a deeper level than just like, Shanana, which was a bit. This movie transcends a bit because they have these great moments with Stalker Channing and Kaneki. Um, but I couldn't help but watch that diner scene. And if you go back and watch it, just watch Olivia Newton-John making eye contact with John Travolta in that scene. And it is so sweet. And I was, and, and you can tell how much she likes him. And there's this real connection between the two of them. And there's so much noise going on in that scene. And they're doing so much in that moment. And I was like, that 
this is kind of the perfect way to do something like this because you still are invested in the story, even though everything around it is bananas. I hear that. I mean, I personally get a little bit more invested in the Rizzo Kanicki of it all. I'm a big, mm. I'm a big Rizzo person. I, I just love think Rizzo. Like, I mean, Stalker Channing is awesome in this. She's amazing in this. And she takes this like bad girl character and gives her so much like heart and depth and like so much vulnerability, I think is what really pops for me in her. You know, when you see that she's like swaggering around the girls, acting cool, bullying Sandy. um, And then she slips out that window to hang out with the boys and they're just like rag on her and say, she's not a lady and she has to keep acting cool. Like nothing they do hurts her. Like she's putting on such a front of trying to be as tough as Danny is, you know, she's really the Danny counterpart, like somebody who's super vulnerable, doesn't want to admit it, you know, has that scene that I, you know, when she's making out with Kaniki, where she's just yes. like, can you call me by my name? Whew. My 25 cent insurance policy. Thanks, Benda. <laughs> what? It broke. How could it break? I bought it when I was in the seventh grade. I love that scene, and I also love that scene because it turns another thing on its head, which is he doesn't pressure her to have sex. First of all, you deflate the whole moment by him saying he bought a condom when he was in seventh grade and he's still not used it. And then you have the next part of it where she's like, essentially, fuck it. Let's have sex. Like, she, she's not guilted into it. She's not it kind of just upends a lot of things. So I understand now why a lot of my female friends like love this movie too. It's like, it's a very empowering movie. The women are as smart and as cool as the guys and they have well thought out storylines as much as the guys in this movie. It's not just about John Travolta and his friends. And I think I didn't real. I mean, these are all things I'd never realized. I do their assumptions that I've made about the movie and in seeing it like this, I'm like, Oh, it's so great. And I love when the reveal of his car being so shitty, like there's so much fun stuff there, but she is, she's got a bite to her. And that song, that Sandy D song, can you help me with this a little bit? Because I always thought it was about Sandra D the actor. But then when I watched the movie, I'm like, Oh wait, is it about like, I didn't understand like, is the song supposed to be about Sandy in the movie or Sandra D, the actress? Because it feels like I'm confused. I'm, I, I feel like she's aiming it at her, but is she, are they the same person? Do they share similarities? I, this is where I didn't, I didn't understand it fully. Okay, this to me is major, a major question. I'm so glad that you brought it up because I think 
I have tended to see that scene as them just making fun of Sandy. Right. But this time I really tried to pay attention to what they're really making fun of. And it's not Sandy. You know, like, yes, they have the blonde wig on. And yes, Sandy kind of takes it personally. Well, because she says at the end, like, well, you made fun of me. Or, you know, like, like you see her get hurt by it. Yeah, she does. And I think that that's sort of the placement staging of the song, too. Like, it wasn't okay. like that in the original musical, that it, it wasn't like a bedroom scene, you know, with like the wigs on and everything. Um, that's all kind of added to make it more visual. What it is, is I think it's Rizzo making fun of the movie stars who were supposed to represent ideal womanhood. You know, she's making Got fun it. of Sandra Dee, Doris Day, and Annette Funicello. And she's basically saying, you know... These are the girls that Hollywood is feeding us, you know, saying that this is what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to be these like innocent virgins who are just really cute and passive and don't have a lot of like physical needs for ourselves and don't have much that we really want. Like those are women on screen that were kind of manufactured by adults to tell teenagers how to behave. Right. Because in the 50s, you're having this like upswing of teenager culture and Hollywood in the 50s is like, how can we get in on this and how can we teach kids to behave. And so they have these like manufactured kind of teenager girls who are, you know, Sandra D, Annette Funicello, Dorsey, sort of, she was a little bit older, but they're saying like, be like these girls. This is what teenagehood is like. And they're basically trying to stamp down this teenage movement and make it kind of like commercialized and conformist. You know what I mean? And yeah. so like, this is a song that I think is directed more towards that directed more towards like a pop culture and a Hollywood that's telling young girls how to behave when it isn't who they really are and it isn't who they really want to be. And it's just really targeted that way, which then is sad because when you like get into the whole history of like Sandra D, like she was a girl who had a really hard young life and was kind of forced to play this like squeaky clean girl and while being, you know, really abused by people in her life. And it's also heartbreaking. Even Sandra D didn't get to be Sandra D. Right. And and I think that that's, again, another reason why this movie is more pointed than you would think, because it's commenting on the, I mean, the sexism or the the stereotypes that we are being forced to live under in that time of what is perfect. And that, to me, is an idea that seems more complex than what you would put in a normal musical, right? It's It's because these characters don't want to be that way. They want to, like you said, they want to go out and they want to party. They they want, and they don't want to just like have fun. They want to like, like you said, like they want to fuck and smoke and they, they it's not safe partying or they, you know, or it's not like benign partying, I guess I should say. Yeah. And that's why I think what's so great about like the Rizzo arc is that, you know, in a teen movie, it's like, the girl has sex. She gets pregnant. It possibly ruins her life. It's derailed. She's usually at some point filled with like regret. Like, what have I done? Yeah. Why did I make such a mistake? And instead, Vizzo has that song, you know, Worst Things I Can Do, where she's like, well, what are the worst things I could do? The worst thing I could do is not live my life. Someone like me. 
And that's, I think, why I love her character more than anybody. She's making a defense of being bad. She's just like, and a bad's even a loaded word. She's making a defense of living her life and being like a sexual person. And, and she's doing it without shame. And that's remarkable. I don't think that happens. No, it, again, it it's breaking the norms and the traditions here and showing people maybe how they actually are versus what we see in film. Like, Because these are all the tropes. We're breaking all the tropes that we see in a normal high school film. We've seen every part of this. And then think about this. She's just not pregnant. That's all. It's yep. not even like she I love that. get an abortion. She's just not pregnant. Oh, it was an accident that I thought I was pregnant. No biggie. Like... So she has sex and then everything's fine. That's crazy. That, no, as we talk about this movie, I, I kind of just love it more and more. And I, I I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Randall Kleiser, who is the director of this movie, because I really think a lot of these choices are coming from him and the way that he directs this. And I think I think what he does here is he breaks the mold of what we've been used to seeing in traditional uh musicals brought to screen and we could go back to West Side Story. It's a very flatly shot film. It's beautiful and it's great, but it's, it, it feels like a stage play right here. The locations are real. You don't feel like you're on sets. Uh, you know, you can see real Griffith Park in the background. They're driving around. They're in they're They're in Los Angeles. And there's a, a reality to that that makes it feel a little bit more alive. And then the musical numbers take on this otherworldliness. It reminded me of Xanadu, like the idea like we're just going to go bonkers here. Like beauty school dropout is when that starts to happen and you see Frankie Avalon coming out of like these sparkles and like digital effects. You're like, what am I, what am I watching? I was like, this is tripping me out. And then in Grease Lightning, they're just, the set changes all to white. They're in these like outfits that are totally different and you just go with it and you roll with it. And these are big, bold choices that he's making. And it all really works. I mean, we talked about it earlier, the Ralph Bashke open. It feels like this. I think we're just kind of really finding this punk rock, almost like Texas Chainsaw Massacre energy of like, we are the visionaries. We're doing something different. And the old school it, we're kind of upending the old school musical here. And I think there's something really interesting about the merging of these two things. Yeah. And it's weird because it almost even seems to go back further than the 50s. You know, mm -hmm. like the look of some of those musical numbers, especially that like stark white, it makes me think more of like the musical numbers of the 30s, like Busby Berkeley. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And stuff where Busby Berkeley would do things like a beauty school dropout, like have a bunch of girls in the same outfit, kind of creating shapes, you know, being architecture in the back of a scene. And so it feels like kind of a nod to like classic, classic Hollywood, even if it's making fun of 1950s Hollywood. And a lot of that is like Alan Carr. Like I want to give kind of like a shout out to yes. him in his background. I mean, like this is a guy who managed like Tony Curtis and Peter Sellers and Joan Rivers. This is a guy who claims that he is the person who discovered Olivia Newton-John, but also like Mark Hamill and Michelle Pfeiffer and Steve Gutenberg, you know, he really had this love of like classic Hollywood and he had all these kind of crazy ideas of things he wanted to do with the casting of Grease. Like he wanted to put Harry Reams in the movie as the coach. Harry Reams, if that name sounds familiar to you, he was one of the stars of Deep Throat. 
um, who had just a few years earlier been found kind of guilty of obscenity. And uh, the studio was like, absolutely not. He was like, okay, well, what if I put Andy Warhol in the movie as like an art teacher? And they were like, absolutely not. But he's doing all these choices or trying to behind the scenes to highlight like this kind of punk snotty energy. I mean, to put a porn star in this movie, you are definitely trying to make more of a joke of it than I think this movie is seen as. Well, and I mean, he didn't get would, to pull it off, but like the his heart was there. Even having Bakshi, Bakshi did like karate crazy animation. Yeah, I mean, Fritz the Cat. It's kind of like Alan showing his cards, you know? I, I will also say that I think he got a lot of that shit in, in Can't Stop the Music, which is the uh, other musical he did about, uh, you know, the Village People musical. I don't know if you ever, I mean, it's not very good, but it, it also has that same, there's this energy that he brings of just, mixing and matching different ideas. I mean, that that is a very interesting musical. Uh, and I'll also say, like, Alan Carr responsible for maybe one of the biggest uh, musical missteps in history. Do you know about this? Oh, yes. Let's talk okay. about it. Okay. Alan Carr uh, was in charge of the musical number <laughs> between Snow White and Rob Lowe. Take a listen. But you said goodbye to grumpy and sleepy Left the dwarves behind, came to town to stay Lights keep on burning Cameras keep on turning I mean, on every list, this is one of the worst moments in Academy Award history. I mean, or or it is the most kind of visual representation of why the Academy Awards doesn't work. <laughs> well, according to legend, I mean, that Rob Lowe Snow White number kind of killed Alan's career overnight. Like that was kind of it. Wow. For him, he was considered uncool forevermore after that. But I feel like you even see a glimpse of it in that intro like in that intro animation, because they're ripping off Snow White there. Like he clearly loves 1930s movies. He has, mm-hmm. You know, the birds are dressing like the Olivia Newton-John at the beginning. Like it's very Disney gag. And I, and I think like you also see his love of the 30s and the stuff that he's alluding to in the casting of Eve Arden and Joan Blondell. You know, Eve Arden plays like Principal McGee and Joan Blondell plays Vi, the waitress. These are two of my favorite actors from the 30s. You know, Eve Arden is in Stage Door. She plays like this sarcastic girl who wears a cat around her shoulders the whole time. And Joan Blondell is like my heart and soul. And Joan Blondell is in a bunch of the Busby Berkeley musicals. And to have just Joan Blondell pop up here at the very beginning of like the beauty school dropout number and just be Joan Blondell, who even in her day was kind of like an anti-production code Figure. I think we talked about this maybe like a hundred years ago in an early episode of Unspooled, how Joan Blondell, the year before the production code, would do like photographs of her kind of naked behind chairs and then couldn't do it anymore, but was known as being like this kind of like saucy, naughty, erotic, boundary pushing figure who like made jokes that nobody else could pull off with. You know, she was hilarious. And so to have her here being Vi, here she is as Vi. No use crying over spilled milkshake. Oh, I'll be okay. You know, it's near closing time, don't you? Do you mind if I stay around a little longer, Vi? No, suit yourself. Wow. What? Well, I hate to tell you this, but your hair looks like an Easter egg. Oh, yeah. 
Well, I, I had a little trouble in tinting class. I can't help but think that Alan Carr is like commenting on the 1930s or folding them in at least into the style of the movie. Well, I mean, yeah, you could also see that moment when you're talking about in Beauty School Dropout, the angels coming into frame at the end, you know, they're clumsily clump coming into frame. It's like commenting on like it, 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 it looks like roughly put together. It's it's not as smooth. And and the, it it's not because the movie couldn't make it smooth. It's a choice to be commenting on that kind of an ending. Yeah. You know, in a way that kind of makes me think of like one of the things that we admired about Nightmare Before Christmas, that kind of hand felt, handmade fingerprint feeling that that the stop motion animation has. I feel like you have it in kind of the I would say more energetic than perfect choreography. You know, lots of like hand waving, lots of like high kicking, lots of dancing, but it doesn't feel like glossy. It feels kind of like goofy and a little disheveled. I mean, there's parts where I think John Travolta looks like one of those. What are those like balloon men who wave their hands in front of car dealerships? Uh, Oh, yeah. Like one of those just, I mean, it's, that's what it is. A balloon man. Yeah. Well, I think he dances like a balloon man a lot of the time. And I mean that in the absolute best possible way, waving his hands around. And then for some reason, even though this is supposed to be the 50s, ending like half of his numbers with like the point from Saturday Night Fever just because. Uh, I mean, it's such like it's such a meld. And I think they're all being directed to be big, right? There is an energy here. Even when you see the host of American Bandstand in another film, you would see that person being personified as like, oh, we have to we have to go meet this person. We have to go see this. And you see him as a vain, shallow, like you see all the the stuff that movies don't show you. Like it it's a real disillusioned look at like American bandstand. Like, all right, guys, can where were you guys? Oh, we're late. Okay, we'll be on air. Like there's nothing great about it. I even was laughing because they go, the gym never looked this good. And they pull out wide and the gym looks shitty. Like it's like they didn't even really like they didn't even Hollywood up the gym that much. I, I would think like the enchantment under the sea dance and back to the future. And by the way, back to the future, I think plays with some of these ideas of like the 50 stereotype versus what, I, you know, was what it was versus what it is portrayed as. Oh, very um, much. I mean, it even has the same ending. Couple gets yeah. in car flies away. <laughs> Different couple. I, I wanted to have this conversation so bad because like, wait, wow, this is actually really subversive. And I don't think that that was the idea that I was thinking at all. And I don't even know how many people get that. Or do you take it at face value? I mean, what do you what do you think the staying power of this movie or why this movie works is? Because it's it borders on almost being too clever. I could see this being a total and complete failure. And I think the reason why Grease 2 was a failure is because it's the more earnest version of this. And it doesn't really have all the commentary that this one does. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard... 
I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, one of the facts that I'm really stuck on about this movie is that Elvis dies while they're making it. You know? Oh, really? Elvis, like the biggest rock star who had ever lived up until that point. Elvis Presley dies as they're making it. I mean, there was some talk that they wanted Elvis to do a cameo. I don't know how serious they were about that. Well, I know they changed the reference to Sal Mineo in the Look at Me, I'm Sander D., uh, song because uh, he was murdered and they put in Elvis Presley, uh, but he died the same day the scene was filmed. So that was a real, uh, a, a real tricky, <laughs> a tricky lyric there. Yeah. So think about that. I mean, think about being alive in 1978 and your heroes of the fifties are dying. Like, I imagine that then this movie comes out about the 50s and people are primed for that nostalgia. You know, they're like ready to, I think, celebrate and mourn. And then there is something about the audience reaction to this film that I think wipes away all the satire. And I'm fascinated by that because it seems like usually, you know, you make a movie and the years kind of make a joke of it. They're like, oh, right. wasn't that corny when they did this? Oh, how ridiculous. But somehow Greece has become more sanctified and revered than I think it meant to be. And that's bizarre right. in its own way. It's, but I, I also think we just experienced this with A Nightmare Before Christmas, which is here's something that is not the traditional Disney film that now Disney embraces in such a way that there are nights dedicated to it. There are rides that are reskinned about it. There's merch made about it to this day. These characters are part of the park's lifeblood and, and the, and the, and the company's lifeblood. But yet their original intention was to be almost a fuck you to everything that they're doing. Like, not that Tim Burton was like, let me make something that Disney would never make, but he he clearly didn't want to make it there. They forced him to make it there. Here, it but it gets eaten up because it's good and people respond to it. And this is goes back to the conversation we keep on having on this show about what people really want versus what sometimes people are given. And it's almost like, oh, they'll never eat it. This is the the craziest food. It, you know, it's it's fish eggs. They'll never eat it. And then you eat it and you're like, wow, that was really good. I really like, and because you've never been exposed to so many other foods that you get this, this is a really terrible analogy, but, but I think like, because it's so rare to get something different that when you do get something different, you embrace it and you almost then lift it up to a higher sphere. Like if there are 10 versions of Greece or if there are 10 versions of Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, it may not be that way, but these are these like, outliers that's kind of sneak in and then are kind of fully embraced. Yeah. And it's strange because I think there's a way of reading Greece to make it even more cynical than what mm-hmm. we're even doing, which is when you think about, you know, in a movie that yes, is mildly plotless, it's mildly plotless in part because everything that seems to take up a lot of space in the movie kind of doesn't matter. You know, there's this dance competition in the middle and, you know, who wins like, who cares? Uh, yeah. 
I mean, even even the even the conflict of that scene is so insane. It's like Sandy goes with uh, Travolta and, you know, they're they're dancing. Everything's going well. And this other girl who came from another school who's an amazing dancer is literally forced to dance with Travolta. Like it's not like Sandy is pulled out and then they do this amazing dance, which is great. And she's like, oh, you're it's almost like you're you're cheating on me. And he's like, he's not like he's not. It, it, but we buy into, OK, I get it. Like there's just there are these jumps that you make because we understand the format of the movie that we're watching. Oh, he was flirting with another girl. He's not flirting with her. He's just he literally was forced to dance with her. But he's and, sort of lying to her. We don't know what his history is with Chacha, but he seems to not want to tell her. Right, so she's okay. mad that he's not telling her something. Sure. But even so, I mean, think about how long we spend at that dance. We spend like three or four songs at that dance. We oh, spend yeah. like a huge chunk of the time at the dance. And it it's just sort of there. And then it, we go from the dance to like the race. And, you know, usually in a movie where there's a drag race, like in Rebel Without a Cause, somebody winds up dead and somebody winds up learning a lesson. None of that mm-hmm. happens here. You know, it's it's another giant part of the movie, huge set piece that doesn't actually mean much. It's like they're kind of just wasting time with these activities that don't mean anything. Well, that's why I think that this movie is a giant fuck you to Rebel Without a Cause. It's sort of like it's taking the it's it's like a satire of Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, it's like, In what many if you ways. had a car race and nobody died because that's so yeah. fake? What if you had sex and nobody died because that's so fake? Or or no one got pregnant. Like, you know, yeah. like, you know, it's like, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's probably the more realistic version of, of this. Back to the whole high school dance of it all. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's the thing I wanted to ask you about. So... I think there's like two divides in the mu- in the musical numbers here, right? And I want to really get into the music because I think that that is like one of the thrusts of this whole miniseries is that musical numbers in a film are this excuse to kind of step in to fantasy, you right. know? And yes, there's like the there's the musical numbers in here that are like really obvious fantasy where they're going into like the white background and everything's like magical. And then there's the musicals numbers that are just set at school where people are kind of singing and celebrating. And it's like fantastical in its own way that everybody's like into this number and wants to hang out and wants to dance in the background that there's like people grooving. What do you think about the dance number that last one at the dance between John Travolta and Cha-Cha where all of a sudden they seem to know the exact same dance and they're doing it at the same time. Like, I think there's one way of reading that where you're just like, it's some sort of crazy fantasy that he and this girl randomly know the same dance number and they're like killing it together on the dance floor. And then we have this kind of in-between stage, which is like the dance numbers at the dance, where like some of the dance numbers just look like the kids kind of hanging out dancing as though they would be dancing at a dance. And it's not a musical number with any sort of fantasy to it at all until you get to the moment where like suddenly... Danny Zuko and Chacha know the exact same dance number and they're like really killing it. And I was curious what you thought of that. Like, is that a moment where they're stepping into fantasy where this kind of ordinary dance becomes heightened? Or is it like a hint that he and Chacha used to date and that they've actually like known this dance together and that them dancing the same dance and knowing the steps is kind of telling Sandy that they've that they've boned. Oh, I didn't look at it like that. I just looked at it like a conceit of a musical Hmm. No, you're right because so many musicals do do that. Magically, we know the same dance number. Yeah, and now we know we're the dance, but, yeah, but like it Which feels like kind of bothered me. 
Huh. Well, I guess if you know how to dance with somebody, maybe like, isn't like, you know, that, that idea, like, oh, if you can, if you can do that, then, you know, it's like as close as you can get to sex without, you know, like that kind of like you're in rhythm with each other's body. I mean, I don't know. Uh, gosh, it's a hard, I I like, I like the thought experiment of it. Like, sure. Like that dancing that well with her means that he has done other things with her. Yeah. And and now that I'm thinking about it, I don't like movies where suddenly two people know the same dance when it happens in the context of an otherwise pretty normal movie, you know, where there's just like a dance number in the middle. Oh, it's a prom scene. And we magically know the same dance. I'm always like, come on. I hate that for some reason. I I can't give into that fantasy. I really should try, but it makes me really irritated. But here, I think because the framework is so fantastical, I'm like, absolutely, go for it. Yeah, sure, you and Sandy know that like ridiculous rodeo dance that is very lame. And I absolutely, they should have lost that dance contest. I mean, (laughs) hopping around like that, what are you doing? Everybody else is killing it. Anyway, now I feel like I'm like getting in way too deep. But what really fascinates me about musicals is like when they step into fantasy and when they pop out. There's one other scene that I'm kind of fixated on. And I just need to say it out loud to see if I'm going crazy. So... Travolta's singing through this whole movie, right? He's singing pretty yeah. good. As you said, had you know hits on the charts forever. Yeah. So, of course, Danny, when he sings in this like fantasy heightened musical world, sings really well. But there's another scene in here when they're at the dance where he's yeah. talking to Sandy about being on TV or being famous or whatever. And he sings to Sandy. And it feels like the first time she's heard him sing because she's like, oh, you're a good singer. But he's actually a bad singer only in that one minute i mean listen tell me i'm not going crazy Travolta, in that moment where Danny is supposedly singing in reality to his girlfriend, who's actually hearing him in normal world, is a bad singer. So is he trying to say that like Danny Zuko is not a great singer? It's just only in his like head in the musical numbers that he can sing beautifully. Like that there is it a is it a dose of reality in this movie? Or is Travolta just fucking around and losing my mind? Yeah, I don't think he's a singer. I, I think he's a T-bird. He wants to work on his car, but like the like so when we're hearing his real voice, that's his real voice singing. He's not a good singer, but for the musical, he has to be. Because I don't believe that everyone in a musical is a great singer. Like I don't believe that the people in West Side Story are all aspiring singers, or people in Oklahoma are aspiring singers. Like Hedwig, sure. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't I don't think this is a way that anyone communicates it's it's the conceit of the the genre yeah and i just i don't know i, I like, like that idea though that i see it with like talmudic fascination because i'm pretty obsessed with it that moment but anyway you've heard me go on and on about like the moment in tom cruise when tom cruise sings in top gun and how like that's my entire theory of the movie hinges on that scene too so these are the scenes that i like love i do think you know to your point that like this is just really well directed by like Randall Kleiser. I mean, mm-hmm. he was John Travolta's pick because John Travolta had enough clout burgeoning that he could tell the producers who he kind of wanted. And like he and Kleiser had done a TV movie together. Of course, the infamous, well, this one. Isolated at birth. Until he develops an immune system of his own, he'll have to remain in his protected environment. Are we talking about days or weeks or months? Years. Trapped for a lifetime. You don't care what happens to you. Touch somebody that thinks you want to die. 
like we're feeling like a hospital case. Like some weirdo kid who, who can't even breathe normal air because he might get sick and die. John Travolta is the boy in the plastic bubble. A USA premiere event tomorrow at 2, 1 Central. That's also, by the way, where Travolta met one of the first major loves of his life. You know, the actress who played his mother in that film, her name was Donna Highland. Uh, she was, I think, maybe 18 years older than him. They fell like rapidly in love, really sincere, super passionate. And then she dies of breast cancer um, just a year later into their relationship. And so he's like still in the mourning process as he's making Saturday Night Fever and making Grease. And like Grease is like a huge distraction for him. I mean, she actually like even died in his arms. You know, this was like a huge moment for Travolta. And, you know, of course it was a big story, like on, you know, the covers of magazines and everything that like, you know, this guy who's on Welcome Back Cotter, who gets like 10,000 fan letters a week was dating this older woman. And then she died on him. Like it was this huge, huge story for a guy who was just becoming a star to even attempt to navigate. And I I think he did it really well. Like he's always like honored her memory and spoken really honestly about how much he he loved her. Even to be like a 23-year-old rising star and to be dating a woman who's like a 41-year-old mother. Yeah. That kind of shows you that Travolta is a guy who has his passions. I think that maybe that's part of why I think his Danny Zuko is really believably obsessed and in love with with Olivia Newton-John. Like he just plays love so well. You know, that last number. Yeah. Um, I mean, didn't John Travolta do a love story with Lily Tomlin at this time too? He did it right after. It was like the third one in his contract that okay. he had with the producer of this, of Robert Stiegwood, who like assigned him to a three picture deal. Uh, and that one really hurt his career. Um, Robert Stiegwood, the other producer, he was like the guy who was the manager of the Bee Gees. And he also was behind right. doing like hair and Jesus Christ Superstar and Saturday Night Fever. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know, for some reason when I was prepping for this episode, I wound up watching um, You're the One That I Want, that number, like four times in a row, more oh, wow. than I've ever seen it, just to watch Travolta. Because you're seeing a guy who like on a scale of one to 10, as like, here's the creation of a movie star, he's on a 15. Like he's yeah. crazy in this movie. Like his performance is beyond physically expressive. And in that number, like, he looks like Tom in the Tom and Jerry cartoons, basically. Like he's chasing after her. His tongue is out. He's falling to his knees. He's yeah. doing stuff that's kind of embarrassing even for like the Danny Zuko to have done at the beginning of the film. And he's like super cool guy. But I don't know if anybody has ever stared at a woman on screen the way that he stares at Olivia Newton-John in that movie. Like he can't even take his eyes off of her in half of the choreography. And I think that is where so much of the love of this movie comes from. You're watching a guy just a adore a woman, adore her, always like spinning back to her. She's like the sun in that movie. He's just chasing her and mimicking her movements and following her around and doing it with such like expression. The way he uses his body as an instrument, I just think it's phenomenal in this film. I think he kind of mops the floor with Olivia Newton-John, if I'm going to be brutal. I think he mops the floor with everybody in this film. And that's not to say that the cast is not good. I, I think the performances are are really Great, but he seemingly has all the pieces. The comedy chops, the dancing chops, the singing chops. He can the do... The over-the-shoulder zoom into his blue eyes chops. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, he he is electric. He's vulnerable, but he can also buy him being tough. Like it's He can make fun of himself in all those jock scenes, the way he's like yeah. walking. 
And that that was a whole sequence I never saw before. And I thought that was so interesting and so bizarre. It's in the middle. And it's not even really a musical set piece. It's just a physical, funny set piece. And um, yeah, I don't know. You're right. Like, you watch this movie and you go, of course, of course. But I think you felt that way in Saturday Night Fever, too. You know, like this, he has this assuredness. And they're very different roles. Um, you know, that one is a grittier role. That one is the last picture show level drama. Like, I think he's able to really pull off a lot of different things. It's the reason why Look Who's Talking is a giant hit, right? Because he can oddly, like, connect you in this family movie. Like, he's got something, even to this day, that is charming and not um, scary, uh, you know, that kind of just brings you in, but he also, he's got it all. The young Travolta's got it all. And I still think he's got that energy when you see him, you know, him and Kirstie Alley talking about like, oh, look who's talking reunion. Like, and he seems straight up crazy sometimes, but I'm just sort of like, yeah, he's got, there's an energy here like that you don't often find with uh, male leading men. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Like he, he does, I guess what Danny Zuko does. He gives himself over to looking ridiculous in service of, having everybody fall in love with him. Yeah. And yes, some of his stardom comes at, you know, the sacrifice of Jeff Conway. Like Jeff Conway had played Danny on the Broadway version. He was- Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah. Barry Bostwick was like the first Danny Barry Bostwick of Rocky Horror Picture Show, a movie that I've really attempted to do in the series. Um, and Jeff Conway was uh, Barry Bostwick's understudy. And then he did the role. And Rosa also performed in Greece on Broadway. So did like a lot of famous people, honestly, like ran through the whole uh, Greece stage production. But yeah, so- uh, Conway was told that he couldn't be Danny in this film because Travolta had to be Danny, but he could be Kanicki. But and he was like, well, at least Kanicki has that great number, Grease Lightning. And Travolta was like, well, actually, I want to do Grease Lightning too. So Travolta basically takes like his big number and makes it a Danny number, which is not the way that it was supposed to be on stage. And wow, alas, but. The gossip on that movie is that like Jeff Conway drowned his sorrows by basically like dating all of the extras. You can actually even hear the actor who plays uh, Eugene share some of the gossip on that right here. Jeff Conaway trying to engineer a trailer triumph for castmate Eddie Deason. When we did Grease, I was a virgin. Jeff Conway literally, I was so scared he was trying to get me laid. We were teasing him, we were terrifying him. There was a rumor on the set he was trying to get me a hooker. He was going to get me a hooker and he goes, he's going to be in my trailer. Because he's always saying, oh, I want to get laid, I want to get laid. And I was real scared there was one day that was going to happen, but luckily it never came to pass. I also heard a story that Conway like insisted on giving Stucker Channing like real hickeys from his own mouth because he's like, it will look better. And and they and him and Stucker Channing had such a contentious relationship that that energy was brought into the diner scene and they had to cut a lot of that diner scene down because they were so angry at each other that it the movie lost its tone. It felt like someone described it as a scene that Martin Scorsese would direct. So there was a, it seems like there was a lot of energy uh, on a set like that, where I think people are jockeying to, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to, to be number one. I think it's a hard spot to be the number two guy behind Travolta in this. There's something really interesting about the way this movie is constructed in the sense that the movies that we've seen about the fifties, like Rebel Without a Cause, feels like it was written by adults trying to understand kids. And even though James Dean had a heavy hand in like the drama of it, it didn't feel like 
it was exactly what kids were going through. And then you see this idealized version of this era with like George Lucas and American Graffiti, where it's like, this is what we were like. And it's sort of like putting themselves on a pedestal. But this movie is a little bit different. Also, what I think is so key about the Jack scenes is we're seeing him realize that he's not the coolest guy in school. Like he's leaving his little fiefdom of the Thunderbirds and realizing that to the guys on the basketball team and to the other wrestlers, he's a joke and that they don't think he's as cool as he thinks he is. And you get to see how sensitive Danny Zuko is. Like he acts out in all of those scenes and gets violent because he hates realizing that he's not that awesome at everything. When he enters different high school orbits, he's just some kind of screw up. Also, yeah, that like Kaniki has this old condom. It very much means that Kaniki has not had sex yet, despite the fact that all of these guys in this movie act like huge horn dogs. I mean, there's a, of course a like contrast in the opening number about last summer. These guys are all just talking a big game. Like Kaniki has not had sex. His condom is very old and it's broken. And basically all the rest of the Thunderbirds are pretty committed to one girl throughout the whole movie. You know, like, Sonny's really into Marty and Duty's really into Frenchie and Kaniki's really into Rizzo. And they're not going out and banging everybody. They're just lying about it. It's their own image, too. Well, Amy, you know, we've seen a lot in this movie and maybe even more than I realized. And even coming into this episode and talking to you about it, I, I, I feel like now I want to rewatch it again. Um, I do want to know what people thought of this movie, because I, I think we've said that it took a while for it to catch on. So what were you know, what were people saying? Like, what were the reviews like? I would call them mixed. I, oh, okay. It had, I would say like a La La Land reception where the majority was like, hey, this is kind of fun. And the people who hated it really, really, really hated it. The Washington Post said, I've never seen an uglier large scale musical. I mean, ugly in spirit as well as unattractive and melodically impoverished. And Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times, he really went for it. This is what he said. This was the 50s, this sleazy and cynical piece of work. You have got to be kidding. I was there and only the tail fins looked familiar. I didn't see Grease on stage, but on the testimony of this strident, cluttered, uninvolving and unattractive movie, it is the 50s, perhaps the last innocent decade allowed to us, played back through a grotesquely distorting 70s consciousness. The editing is frequently and nervously bizarre. The choreography is furiously energetic, which is not the same as exciting. Grease is a raunchy anthem to a particularly sterile and essentially anti-feminist unisex. It would be difficult to remember a movie in which the women have been less attractively characterized. These high schoolers all look to be a hard-used 30. The movie's happy ending is to convert Olivia Newton-John, established as a shy and thoroughly decent sort, into a perfect replica of a cut-rate Soho whore. To say that parental guidance is advised is an understatement. Grease may have a 1950s sound in a high school setting, but it is a profoundly jaded film. Compared to Grease, Saturday Night Fever's was Cries and Whispers and Singing in the Rain rolled into one. That's so interesting because in many respects, it addresses what we talked about in the beginning of the podcast, that this is a person who lived that time going, I want to see more of that. I want to see more of my American graffiti. I don't, I don't recognize myself here. And he's really rebelling against what it is or what we have at least decided it is, which is like this kind of more of a punk rock anthem of the now. Yeah, I mean, I think he believes in the sound of the 50s as he remembers it. 
as adults maybe remembered it a bit, you know, which we get a taste of right at the beginning in that beach scene where they're making out and you hear that kind of mainstream love song that sounds, you know, yeah. it's very like from here to eternity. But then, you know, the Grease anthem kicks in, and this is very much not that. As for the Soho whore of it all, I mean, let me ask you this, because, like, honestly, really closely watching this dance last night, the closing dance, you know, he walks up, he's in a letterman jacket, she walks up, she's in a black leather jacket. They actually both take off their jackets. It's not just that he takes off his letterman jacket, she also takes off her leatherman jacket, and maybe just because it's it's hot. So maybe the thing isn't that like he quits being a jock, but just he was hot. So he took the jacket off. And maybe the question is, at the end of the number, does he put the Letterman jet back on when she puts her leather jacket back on? Maybe he's come her way, too. I think I always read it as a rejection. But now that I'm seeing that they both take off their jackets, I'm kind of not sure. Maybe them taking off their jackets is rejecting everything saying, forget it all. We don't need the jackets to define us. We are our own person. We are the black shirt people. And then that brings in the emo scene and all of a sudden Fallout Boy is happening. And they brought, this is what made emo goth. That's <laughs> that's what Greece brought to the table. I mean, maybe, maybe. I mean, maybe, maybe Sandy's the liar. Can we be honest about this? Like, sure, go ahead. You know, in the Got Friendly song, where they're singing that back and forth about how their summer went. My entire life, I've watched that number and been like, well, Danny Zuko's obviously lying. But like, based on what? You know, what if she's lying? What if she's like really bought into the whole 1950s good girl thing, doesn't want to admit what she might have done because she's worried her new friends will think she's like a Soho whore, as uh, Charles Champlin would say. And so she's putting on the sound of of sounding like a good, proper girl. Like... Uh, Wait, maybe this is no, you are you are pretzeling this lot. I mean, I'm I'm down to chase anything, but that seems that just seems antithetical. I mean, I, I do think and I'm I'm down for the thought experiments of it all because I'm going to position one to you in a second. But I do think what is really interesting is and what is subversive about this is it's a good girl gone bad. And that is the move of the hero in the movie. In many respects, you could say it is Sandy's movie because she is the one who truly makes the change, right? Like she goes from this sweet, innocent girl to now this pink lady. Uh, Or I would almost say she's a T-bird. She has more of a T-bird energy than a pink lady energy. But um, so I think there's something really interesting about that. It subverts the trope that we're used to. And it also makes you realize like, oh, maybe this movie is about Sandy and it's not about Danny. Although we do spend more time with Danny attempting to change. But but you know what we don't spend time with at all? And I think this is actually a good choice on the movie is we don't ever go home with Sandy and see anything about the life that she comes from. Like perhaps that she has a father who's like, be a good girl, Sandy, or right. they're peer pressuring her. I mean, that the was parents a big are pretty part. non-existent in this movie. They are. 
But like, think about Rebel Without a Cause. You know, the idea that Natalie Wood was rebelling against her dad was such a signature point of that movie. Like if her dad wasn't like this, maybe she wouldn't be like this. But we don't have that here. You know, we don't have any sense of what Sandy's family is. I mean, we can guess that her dad is like, you know, old school, repressive, wants his daughter to be good, get married at 18, blah, blah, blah. But that's kind of just a guess. And I think not including... Her dad is really smart because if her dad was there, it'd be like Sandy was torn between two men in her life. You know what I mean? Is she going to be with Danny the rebel or is she going to believe what her dad says? Or maybe your dad is the rebel and that's why she falls in love with Danny. Maybe. But getting rid of the dad, what really hit me on this rewatch is that Sandy decides to change herself at the moment when she's the most alone. You know, she's sitting alone Mm. in that shot on the riverbank as everybody's drag racing below. She comes to it of her own accord without Danny pressuring her or a fake dad pressuring her. And she I think makes that her own decision. She makes her own decision. And I think that that actually is really important, even if I really enjoy this idea that maybe she's lying the whole time. Maybe she's not a good girl. She's a neutral girl pretending to be good, who then becomes a neutral girl who allows herself to admit she's a little bad. Hmm. I like this. Well, let me pitch one more idea. And it's the idea that's been popularized in the last handful of years that Sandy is dead. Have you heard this theory? I have. Go on with this nonsense. Okay, so this is, it actually is nonsense, but let's talk about it. So the theory is that in that opening song that you just played there, um, Danny says, I saved her life, she nearly drowned, right? And people hypothesize that she did drown. And this is all of her dreams in her coma state and her driving off to heaven at the end is her, you know, finally taking her last breath because the car does shoot up into the sky. Now I will say this movie has magical musical numbers throughout, so it doesn't really bother me, but you know, to say this is a Jacob's ladder scenario, I think it's, I think it's reaching because again, what you said, we spend more, more time with Danny and very rarely in our dreams do we, uh, you know, cut away from ourselves and, and, <laughs> and go deep into somebody else's, uh, story. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it, it's fun to think so. I can't, I cannot, uh, judge anybody for having fun thinking that when I have now decided to invent my own version of Sandy that I'm watching through this film. I mean, and you've definitely invented her dad. Um, I think, What I like about that theory is that it is at least debatable. Like, I don't mind, I don't mind a totally bullshit idea. And we talked about a lot of them in Inception. But, oh, by the way, you know, in that Inception episode where we talked to Ed Brubaker, who pitched his whole idea about what Inception means, uh, someone pointed out, we left out a very uh, interesting point. The James Bond movie that Uh, Inception most closely parallels is on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which, to Ed's point, is a movie about James Bond dealing with the death of his wife. Well, technically she dies at the end, but let's just say that it all it is all fair. Um, <laughs> by the way, Amy, I want to do a special episode with you where we talk about the run of Daniel Craig. I know we don't have room for it right now in our musicals, but I feel like we should definitely do a uh, Casino Royale No Time to Die because No Time to Die just came out on VOD. And I feel like now people can see it if they have not gone to the theater and see it. But that might be an interesting thing to do. I know this is a very uh, a large detour here. But uh, but all, all this to say is that I think that this movie has... Um, some 
some lasting effects that people are still arguing about this to this day, even in uh, in Demi's latest uh, September video, it opens with them debating whether or not Danny and Sandy are dead. So I feel like it does come through. John Travolta has been asked about it. He's like, I like to, I can go down that path. I like that path, but I know the writers too well. I, I can't really embrace it. Well, I would say never trust a straight answer from Travolta. I mean, this is Travolta when he's trying to answer a question about like, math involving the audience of Greece. film Greece is that each year there's a new audience for it. So the three-year-olds that weren't born when it came out are now six. The yeah. three-year-olds that weren't born? No. <laughs> Scratch that. My bad. The My dumbest bad. actor <laughs> to the ever hit. The kids that weren't born when it came out are now five. Are now five. And the kids that are three are six. No. <laughs> He's also a mathematician. I'm going to I'm going to tell you Amy, I don't trust Travolta since he did a movie called From Paris with Love where he was not wearing his toupee and he was like, yeah, you know, everyone's been asking me to to shave my head. Everyone's been saying shave your head and they love it. You know, so maybe I'll keep it. He meant he positioned shaving his head as if People were forcing him to do it, and now he might he might do it. Not like I'm a bald man. I've always been bald, and I decided to stop wearing the toupee. Like uh, I just own it. We know it. We've all we know it. We know it. I as a bald man, I can call out another. Yes. Ba- no, as a bald <laughs> man, I can call out another bald man. Just be like, yeah, I'm taking off my toupee. I had a toupee. Like you just don't go bald. Like you just yeah, you had it. It was great. Ted Danson did it. Hey, you could do it. Piven. We don't can pre- you imagine? Hey, Piven, what are you, you got hair all of a sudden? We know. We know. But you don't have to make a big deal out of it. Over the shoulder, zoom into his face at the beginning of the movie. A man like that saying goodbye to hair like that, that's got to be painful, I mean, man. It's pretty, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's very hard for a leading man to lose hair. That's um, like being a gymnast who loses a leg when you have hair oh, like that. So rough. Well, uh, Amy, this has been so great to talk about Greece. I'm so happy I saw it, and I'm really surprised at finding like the punk rock meaning of it. I mean, I feel like there is like a little bit of like, you know, rock and roll high school in here and I didn't even realize it. (laughs) It is true. But I think for our next film, there's a line in Charles Champlin's pan of this movie that really stuck out to me. He said, when he said that the editing is frequently and nervously bizarre and the choreography is fiercely energetic, I thought to myself, really? It feels pretty calm to me. It feels okay. Is that because I'm used to a weirder type of movie or a weirder type of musical? And then I thought, you know what I would say that about is the musical Chicago, which, you know, came out in 2002. Huge movie. Swept so many Oscars. I think it won like six out of 13. And I thought, well, how does that hold up? Sandman of the Oscars. Yeah. I was like, I thought that was too furiously energetic. Maybe we do that next. No, I I don't think it was too furious. I think that if that reviewer saw Chicago, he he would think, oh, that's what a musical is. But I'm I'm open to this conversation. I like where you're going because as we've been reaching out to people on the Discord and on our Twitter, Chicago has been one of the most requested ones. I feel like it falls into that camp of being a musical that because it won so many awards, people just assume it's great and you felt like obligated to see it. So I haven't seen it since the theater because I felt, again, obligated to see it. I did see it on Broadway. Um, I wish I saw the Erica Jane version of it, but uh, I did not. Um, but I'm excited. I, I'll be excited to watch this with you because it's an it's an audience pick, really. Uh, so shall we? 
make Chicago our next choice? Shall we dance? Is that what you're asking me? Well, yeah. I mean, is that a song from Chicago? Uh, no, but we okay. can make it one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, let's take a listen to the trailer. Winner, six 2002 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. A Flash of Leg. The Taste of Temptation. The Smell of Corruption. And Things That Go Bump in the Night. Slick your hair and wear your buckle shoes. And all that Chicago is streaming wherever you get your movies, but also if you have stars, it's for free on stars uh, right now. Um, all right, Amy, we will see you next week for Chicago and all that jazz. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Thank <laughs> you.